As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servants according to your steadfast love and teach us your statutes. We are your servants. Give us understanding that we may know your testimonies and hear our prayers, for we ask them in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and we're going to read Luke's account of the triumphal entry from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 uh, through 40, and our text for this morning will really focus on uh, the words that we hear spoken in verses 37 through 40, but to remind ourselves of the context of these events, we'll read together uh, beginning at verse 28. So Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28, let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of, his, the, two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we often call this Palm Sunday for those palm branches that were waved that we sang about in, in uh, that hymn from uh, number 333, Hosanna, Loud Hosanna. Um, this is the Palm Sunday. We remember on this Sunday particularly the coming of the Lord into the city of Jerusalem, uh, his triumphal entry in coming in. Uh, This was the week that would end in his crucifixion and finally in his resurrection, beginning a new week. And so we often, at this time of year, when our minds and hearts already turn to these things, we often think about them and take time to consider them in our worship services. And so even though as, you know, good Reformed people with with Puritan leanings, we don't celebrate the church calendar uh, the way that other people do, it's always good when our hearts and minds are already thinking about these things to meditate on them from God's word and to think about the triumphal entry of our Lord, that great announcement that he comes as king. Uh, There are very few things our Lord did to encourage people to recognize him as king. And one of the reasons was that they had all sorts of bad associations with what the king would do. Almost always in their minds, political things came up 
when they thought about the king. They thought about the policies he would enact and the, and the procedures he would take to clear the kingdom of its enemies. And so it's almost always a political way they think about the Messiah, which is almost always why Jesus doesn't want them thinking about him as Messiah. Because he knows that their minds will be turned in the opposite direction of where he wants them turned. That it will cause them to fix their minds on the things of this world rather than on the things that are above. And so this is a really unique event in the life of Jesus in that this is one of the events where he particularly calls attention to the fact that he is the Messiah. That he calls attention to the fact that he is king. And that in this instance he comes to Jerusalem as its king. Uh, In Luke's gospel, this is the only time that Luke presents Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Uh, We know that Jesus came to Jerusalem more than once from the other gospel writers, but Luke has a particular thing he wants to focus our attention on by only telling this story of Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Uh, To focus on this event as really the culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry coming to that reason for which our Lord came into the world to lay down his life for sinners and to take it up again for our justification. Uh, Luke is highlighting this as an important event in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the one who, when he came into the world, angels hailed him as the Son of David, the Christ, the Lord, the Savior. And Luke is focusing our attention on now this Christ This Lord, this Savior, is coming into his royal city. This is a time for rejoicing. This is a time for celebration. And it's a time where Luke particularly wants to focus our attention on what is said. And so that's why we want to focus this morning on the words that were spoken uh, at the triumphal entry. The words that were spoken by the crowd of disciples the words that were spoken by the Pharisees, the words that were spoken by our Lord. That's where Luke focuses our attention. That's where we want to focus our attention this morning, on the words that surrounded that event. And we want to see them first as words of rejoicing, then secondly as words of rebuke, and finally as words of reassurance from our Lord that are so necessary for us. That's why I want to think about the words that Luke tells us about. Words of rejoicing, words of rebuke, and words of reassurance. Uh, This is a time of rejoicing. Um, It's it's a happy time. Those those songs that we sing surrounding these events are happy songs. They're celebration. There's rejoicing happening. And the rejoicing really breaks out, according to Luke, when when they get in sight of the city. Uh, That's what he's meaning to tell us by these geographical markers that he puts here. Luke, the historian, wanting to set the stage for us in this way so that we can sort of see in our mind's eye how these events take place. And that's why he gives us those sort of geographic markers for where this praise breaks out. In verse 37, we read, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives... Now, if we don't have the geography of the Holy Land in our minds, I'm not going to test you on this later, um, but what Luke knows is when people read this and, he, and they hear this, anyone who knows the geography will have in mind where this is happening, 
If you've had the privilege of going to the Holy Land and have seen the relationship of the Mount of Olives to the hill where the temple would have been in Jerusalem, you might have this in your mind's eye as well. But the Mount of Olives is a hill that looks down. So there's so the Mount of Olives, it goes down into a valley, and then you go back up to the city of Jerusalem. And so what does Luke mean by saying as they were going down the Mount of Olives and drawing near to Jerusalem? It's, it's this way of saying they've come over the crest of the hill and now they can see the city right before them. Uh, they're now within sight of the royal city. And it's, it's sort of that, the sight of that that Luke tells us. Where they are is what occasions the praise that breaks forth. The rejoicing that begins, they're drawing near to their goal. They're within sight of the city. Probably could see the gold of the temple shining on the hill. They're drawing near with the Lord. And Luke tells us where this praise begins, and he tells us who is doing the rejoicing. Who is it that breaks forth in this praise in verse 37? The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. This is a multitude of his disciples who were with him, who in in drawing near to the city and seeing the Lord coming into the city in this way, riding on a colt, begin to rejoice, begin to praise, begin to sing this praise. And, And Luke wants us to understand it's a multitude of voices singing loudly. A multitude of his disciples are there to rejoice at the king's coming into his city. It's a wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? The praise that's surrounding Christ as he comes to his city as its king. A multitude of the disciples. And why is this multitude singing these praises? Why do they sing? Well, Luke tells us that too with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen. Right? This is a group of disciples, a multitude of witnesses, who've seen all the powerful things that the Lord has been doing. It's it's wonderful that we get to think of this section in, in light of where we've gone through the book of Mark, because we've been reminded of all the many things that Jesus did, the mighty acts that he that he went everywhere performing. That he healed the sick, that he raised the dead, that he provided food, that he calmed the storm, that he walked on water. All of these mighty works, these are witnesses of that. And now the mighty worker is coming into his kingdom. They who've seen him do these things in far out out of the way places in the kingdom is now coming to Jerusalem as their king. And so they're singing and they're rejoicing in the context of all of that they've seen, all that this, this one has done. And why are they singing? What praise do they lift up for the king? Well, we're told what they say in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're using the words of Psalm 118 particularly verse 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a typical greeting used by pilgrims for the pious, for those who are entering Jerusalem, uh, particularly at times of holy festivals. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Um, It was a way of recognizing the people who were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals that God had called them to. It had become a common way of singing, but the people take this common way of singing and now apply it in a very special way to Jesus because they change a critical word in that greeting. It's not the typical, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're thinking back to this psalm. Because in the psalm, it's sung by the Davidic king who's entering into the temple to worship the Lord. People are recognizing that the one who comes as the singer is the king. And it's not just that the people are lifting up Psalm 118. They lift up Psalm 118 and they apply it in its full sense to Jesus, saying, He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He is now coming into his city. It's something to be recognized and it's something to be rejoiced over. Why rejoiced over? Because of what the king comes to do. What does the coming of the king mean for his people? The people sing that praise as well. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. His coming means peace. His coming means that there's peace In heaven. Do these words sound somewhat familiar to you? Does it sound familiar but not quite right to hear it that way? Peace in heaven and glory to God? What does this sound like? Well, it sounds like the song of another multitude, doesn't it? A multitude of the heavenly hosts who appeared with the angel that announced the birth of Jesus. And what happened when suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts? What did they sing? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Angels came and sung peace on earth. Now the multitude of disciples on earth sing peace in heaven. You see how for Luke this is a wonderful bookend praising God. One multitude from heaven said, peace on earth. Now a multitude of disciples on the earth sing peace in heaven. Luke 2 and Luke 19 then serve as the great bookends on the ministry of Christ. God is glorified in the highest by this one who came from heaven to make peace on earth and from earth will make peace with heaven by his cross. This is what Jesus is coming into the city to do. And whether this crowd understood that or not, whether they really understood the full implications of what they were singing, the Holy Spirit inspired them with these words to remind us of the true work of our Savior that multitudes of the heavenly hosts sung about and a multitude of the crowd. Luke uses the same word in both places. I think it's intentional to draw attention to the multitude of heaven that sings about peace on earth and the multitude of earthly servants who sing about peace in heaven. 
Because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do. He's come from heaven to make peace on earth. Peace between earth and heaven. And he does that on earth by his cross. It's on earth that Jesus makes peace between earth and heaven. By his sacrifice on the cross. And there is where God is glorified in the highest. As being a just God who will in no wise clear the guilty. But also being a merciful God who will not hold his anger forever. But has found a way to be just and the justifier through the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ. That's why this deserves all the rejoicing it received. Because here was the king who could do what no other king did. Make peace in heaven. Israel had some great kings who made peace on earth. David is held out as an example who brought the kingdom to rest from all their enemies. He is the high standard against which all other kings were judged. And one of the great things about his kingdom is that he brought peace. But it wasn't a perfect peace, it wasn't a permanent peace, and it certainly wasn't a heavenly peace. But he was pointing forward to that king who would come. Great David's greater son who would come into his kingdom, into his heavenly city, and make peace. Make peace with God for us by his death on the cross. You see why that had to be celebrated? Why there had to be praise? And why it's such a terrible thing that the Pharisees respond to these words of rejoicing with words of rebuke? They're they're the great wet blankets in the scripture, right? Thrown over anything that's happy and joyful. And they come along saying, this isn't right. I think because, in part, theologically, they understand exactly what's happening here. Even if the crowds don't fully understand the theology behind what they're saying, it's much better theology than the Pharisees have, but the Pharisees understand the theology of this. They are celebrating you as the Messiah, They are celebrating you as the king. And we all know that's not who you are, the Pharisees say. Who are you? You're just a teacher. It comes across in the the way they address him as if it's an an honorific, uh, a way of honoring him as a teacher to call him a rabbi. Um, But what really is it? It's in total distinction to what the people are saying. Because what are the people saying? Here is the king. And the Pharisees are trying to say, you're not a king, you're just a teacher. You're not who they say you are. We know better that you're just a teacher. So rebuke them for what they're saying. Don't let them call you king. Don't let them call you Messiah. Don't let them call you Christ. And why do they say that to him? Because the implication is you're not him and you have no right to that title or that praise. Now they think they know better 
But they also know they're powerless to do anything about it. You notice they don't rebuke the disciples. They don't try to stop the crowd. I think it's a testimony to their own powerlessness that they admit right from the outset they have no ability to stop a praising crowd. That's beyond them. If this crowd is going to be stopped, Jesus is going to have to do the stopping. Um, And they appeal to him as the one who can put this all down. And they call on him to rebuke the disciples. And I think... Just as it was important for Luke where these crowds come from and where their praise begins, I think it's also important for him where these Pharisees come from. They come from Jerusalem. They come out of the city. They come as those who should have recognized the king. The crowd recognized him because they'd seen his mighty work. He's done the things that Messiah was going to do when he came. Again, they didn't have a full understanding of this. But they could understand the good that he'd done and that he'd done things that no one else could do. And the Pharisees don't see any of that, even though they are coming out of Jerusalem. And I think the rebuke of the Pharisees, as Luke recounts it to us, is really the rebuke of Jerusalem. It's really Jerusalem saying, you are not our king. We do not recognize your kingship. And really it's the sad way of Jerusalem saying, we prefer our own tyranny to the freedom you offer. That's the sad reaction of God's people in the holy city to the coming of their king. He's the only one who can really set them free. He's the only one who can really bring peace. And what do they say by, through the voice of the Pharisees to the king? We don't want your freedom. It's really the problem being expressed here is really the problem that the world has always had with Jesus. They think his coming means trouble rather than freedom. Right? Maybe the Pharisees were tempering their, their thoughts by justifying them to themselves by saying, you know, if they call him king and the Romans find out, it's going to be terrible for us. They're going to come and wipe us out for raising up a king in opposition to their rule. They could have justified it in any number of ways. The world still does that, justifying any number of ways why we don't want Christ to be king. Because it means he controls our lives. It means we take our marching orders from him. And there's many people who say, just as the people in Jerusalem said, I don't want you as king over my life. I want to rule over my life. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want you as king. And we think that somehow that will maintain our freedom. That's, I think, the error the world makes. That's the error the Pharisees made, for sure. We like how we're ruling things. 
We like how we're controlling things, and we don't want someone else to come in and tell us what to do. He'll compromise our position. He'll compromise our leadership. I think the world still struggles with that. I think it's the natural tendency of the rebel in the heart of all of us to say, I really don't want a king. I want to be king over myself. I want to rule myself and go my own way. It's easy to point fingers at the Pharisees and wag our heads at them. But if we're honest, that's the attitude that lives in our own hearts as well. I want no king but me. That's where freedom is found. But of course what the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to say was, no, that's where death is found. When you're king of your kingdom, it's a kingdom of death. It's a kingdom of slavery. Because actually you can't be your own king. If you think you are, the truth is the devil is your king. You are his slave. There is no independent autonomy in this world. As the great theologian Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. You are a subject of a kingdom, whether you like it or not. The only choice is whether it's a kingdom of darkness or whether it's the kingdom of his marvelous light. And that's what Jesus has come into the world to say. I've come to be a kingdom of light. I've come to set the captives free. And that message doesn't need to be rebuked. That message needs to be sung all over the world. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on heaven and glory to God. And that's why when the Pharisees come to Jesus with these words of rebuke, teacher, rebuke your disciples, Jesus responds with a rebuke of his own. Responding to that rebuke with words of reassurance. What is the reassurance that our Lord gives us in the word? He says to the Pharisees, what you want is impossible. What you want is for the praise of God's people not to be heard in this world. Jesus clears up exactly what they're asking for. What you really want is for the voice of the church to be silenced. And the reassurance the Lord gives us here is that that is impossible. Right? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We've heard from the people. We've heard from the Pharisees. Now we hear from the king. They, re- they turn to him and say, You're the only one who can silence this crowd. And the Lord says, You don't understand. They cannot be silenced. I'm not going to silence them, so they cannot be silenced. And even if you were to do your damnedest, and I mean it in that way, 
even if you were to do your damnedest to quiet the voice of the church and the world, even if you could silence the voice of every single person that sings the praise of God, the creation would break open to do it. Now, boys and girls, I don't know what it sounds like when a rock sings. I'd kind of like to hear it. I don't know if the big rocks would have low voices and the little rocks would have high voices. I don't know how that would work. I'm not acquainted with rock singing. And the good news is that we will never hear the rock sing. Because why does Jesus say the rocks would cry out? If the voices of his people could be silenced, the rocks would have to cry out because there would have to be some praise to the king offered. You cannot silence the praise of the king in the world. And that should be a great comfort to those of us who serve the Lord and are well aware of the hostility of the world around us. That there are those who would like to see the voice of the church silenced. And some people would like to see it done through politics, and lots of people would like to see it done through violence, but there are people who would like to see the voice of the church silenced. And as we see the growing hostility, especially towards us in this country, it can be a cause for fear. That Washington's going to try to do something or Sacramento's going to try to do something to silence the voice of the church and the world. But here is the assurance of our king who alone has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he says the voice of his disciples cannot be silenced in this world. He's the only one who could do it, but he will not permit it. There had to be voices to sing his praise at this triumphal entry, and there have to be voices to sing his praise at the next triumphal entry. This triumphal entry reminds us, as God's people, that there is another triumphal entry coming. The Lord Jesus will come again in glory. He comes here in humility to be a suffering servant, to die for his people. He does not come on a war horse. He comes on a colt. He comes in humility. But he's coming again in glory. And read the book of the Revelation. There he is on a war horse. There he does come as the great King of kings and Lord of lords in all might and power who only needs the voice of his word to silence the enemies in the world and in heaven. Spiritual and physical enemies all silenced only by his voice. It's the only weapon he needs. He's coming again in glory. And if there had to be voices to sing his praise when he came the first time, there have to be voices to sing his praise when he comes again. That's why his assuring words to us, the reassuring words that he gives here is, the voice of the church cannot be silenced. If you could, the rocks would cry out. The church cannot be silenced. It's the great hope of God's people. That because Christ is going to build his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
The church might be afflicted in every way, but it will never be crushed. The church may be perplexed, but it will never be driven to despair. The church may be persecuted, but it will never be forsaken. The church may be struck down, but it will never be destroyed. Because the king has come. Because the king ever lives and rules and reigns now. And he's coming again soon. And when he comes, the whole multitude of his disciples will be with him. I don't know how great a multitude is. Maybe if you know, you can tell me after the service. It's a lot, right? But when the second triumphal entry comes, the multitude of disciples will be far greater because it will be all of the disciples from every time and every place, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The whole multitude of his people will come with him in that triumphal entry. Isn't that the promise? That all the living and the dead will join the Lord at his coming? Paul describes that triumphal entry in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, all who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. What is that promising to the whole church in every age? At his second coming, we will join that multitude in the air and come with him as he comes to the earth. We will be able to join, whether we're living or dead, be able to join that procession. Be able to be among those people who have seen the mighty works of the king and who can testify to what we've seen and who at his coming will be able to sing as these people sang, Blessed is the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When the new Jerusalem comes down with him and when he comes to make all things new. Sometimes we can look at this triumphal entry and say, what I would have given to be there. To see what it would have been like to watch Jesus coming into his earthly kingdom. Well, Christian, if you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be part of the triumphal entry. Far greater, far more glorious in the coming of our Lord into his kingdom. May his words of reassurance here reassure us. He is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ is king. Blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord, the king, and by his cross made peace on heaven and glorified God in the highest. May everyone here be ready to greet him in faith when he comes. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are to have these pictures in the Gospels of the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came into his kingdom as a suffering servant to lay down his life for his people. We thank you that by that death he has made peace between heaven and earth, made peace with you for us. 
and that his victory has assured our place at your side forever. And so, Father, when we see the difficulties and the challenges of our day might not drive us to despair, might we remember who is king and reigning now at your right hand. May we remember that that same king who came into his earthly city all those many years ago will come again in glory, bringing the heavenly city with him. And that we who believe and trust in him will come with him and sing his praises as he comes into his kingdom and makes all things new. How we long for that day. And we pray that it would come quickly. We pray that when he comes, he would find us faithful.